Hi, everybody. Thanks for your patience. Our uh, panelists got caught in some traffic, but uh, thanks for waiting. And welcome. I'm Laura Odato, the Cato Institute Director for Government Affairs. Um, today, we're going to be discussing U.S. policy towards China. And it is. We have a new policy analysis by Justin Logan discussing that very topic. There's copies outside. And if you didn't get one, feel free to uh, talk to me or Justin. We'd be happy to get you a copy. I'll introduce Dan and Justin, then let them take over. Are you going first? Yeah, I'm going to go first. Perfect. Dan is our first speaker today. Dan Eikenson is the director of Cato's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. He focuses on WTO disputes, regional trade agreements, U.S.-China trade issues, steel, and textile trade policies. Before joining Cato in 2000, he was director of international trade planning for an international accounting and business advisory firm, and he co-founded the Library of International Trade Resources. He's authored many studies and articles on trade policy and is the co-author of Anti-Dumping Exposed, The Devilish Details of Unfair Trade Law. Following Dan will be Justin, who is our Director of Foreign Policy Studies. He is an expert on U.S. grand strategy, international relations theory, and American foreign policy. His current research focuses on the shifting balance of power in Asia, specifically with regard to China. Lucky for you all today. And the formation of U.S. grand strategy under unipolarity. He has authored numerous policy studies and articles on topics including international relations theory, China policy, U.S.-Russia policy, and the policy approaches toward nuclear Iran. His articles have appeared in various noted publications, and he has made regular appearances on a variety of broadcast media. And with that, I will turn things over to Dan. Thank you, Laura. Let me get this situated. Thank you for that, and thank you all for coming. It's good to see close to a, a full house here. It's uh, something we take great, great pride in accomplishing, and it's one of the reasons that we ask Laura to book uh, smaller and smaller rooms. Um, I hope that it's not just the title of the presentation today that is drawing you all here. Uh, I don't know that we're going we're to be able to divine uh, what the future will bring, but we will uh, uh, certainly provide analysis and commentary for you today on, on the factors that I think will help to shape uh, the future of the relationship and, and maybe throw, throw in a couple of conjectures here and there. Um, I think this might be the first time that I've participated in an event where the title is uh, U.S.-China Relations, where the word relations isn't modified by trade uh, or, or economics. Uh, I'm used to speaking about trade uh, and the economic aspects of the, of the relationship. And I mention that because I think there's, it's, it's germane to some of the points that, that Justin and I will, will make today. Um, in particular, whereas it used to be, whoa, more commonplace to, to segregate the economic from the security is, uh, issues. Um, it's increasingly difficult to do so today. I think for most of the post-1989 period, uh, the economic relationship uh, was seen as mutually beneficial uh, and, and with having a huge potential upside uh, as a good reason to not complicate things over matters where Washington and Beijing did not necessarily see eye to eye nuclear proliferation, uh, rogue regimes, human rights, civil and political liberties, things like that. So the differences in these areas, I believe, have been downplayed over the years and sort of left to the diplomats to resolve uh, without infecting uh, the economic relationship. And I think that began to change uh, in the last decade, around two, 2006, 2007. And I think that change sort of accelerated in 2009, at which point the economic relationship uh, was, was no longer viewed in isolation, but was really magnified uh, through the prism of our geopolitical 
uh, and philosophical differences. So I'll explain this in more detail over the next 10 minutes or so, uh, but, but, but please note that my emphasis, you know, notwithstanding what I just told you, will be on the economic aspects of the relationship. I'm going to leave the foreign policy and security aspects to, to Justin. In fact, uh, when it comes to uh, the foreign policy dimensions of the relationship, the only thing I really know about red China is that it looks fabulous on a white silk tablecloth. So uh, <laughs> to glimpse the possible future of uh, relations, it's important to understand where we are and, and how we got here. The U.S. policy of engagement with China, I think, which was reaffirmed after some intense deliberations during the Bush 41 administration in the wake of Tiananmen Square, uh, has some uh, has borne tremendous fruit for people in, in both countries, particularly so since 2001 when, when China acceded to the WTO. Uh, that policy of engagement continues to bear fruit today, as evidenced by the nearly half trillion dollar economic relationship, the trade and investment relationship uh, between the United States and China. Globalization, as evidenced by the proliferation of cross-border investment uh, and transnational supply chains, has increased the interdependence of the U.S. and Chinese economies. The way I like to characterize it, the factory floor has, has broken through its walls and now spans borders and oceans. So despite the media's focus on China as a fierce competitor or even an adversary, the fact is that workers in the United States and China are more likely to be collaborating in production on some supply chain than they are to be competing head-to-head. -head. Our economies are really complementary. Uh, assembly jobs in Shenzhen uh, support engineering jobs in Cupertino, California. So as collaborators in production, Chinese companies and workers uh, have been essential to making U.S. designed products more affordable and thus more ubiquitous. Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking about Apple products, for example, and that's helped U.S. companies earn greater profits, reinvest those profits, which support the next generation of products and jobs up and down uh, the supply chain. Uh, and as the middle class in China has begun to emerge, the, the Chinese market has become the third largest export market for, for U.S. goods, just behind Canada and Mexico, our integrated North American partners. Uh, and so by and large, we have been, if not embracing China's rise, at least welcoming its economic growth. But I think that started to change, as I said, in the second, uh, the second half of the second term of the second Bush president. Uh, so in January 2007, uh, when the Democrats took control of Congress, uh, the emphasis on trade policy, at least, was changed from liberalization and accommodation to more to enforcement and, and prosecution. Now, so despite all the benefits of the relationship, uh, it's really the frictions that seem to get most of the attention. Uh, Americans like sports metaphors, uh, and the media likes to indulge uh, the Americans in those characterizations, these us versus them, Team USA versus Team China, zero-sum worldviews. So the idea here is that exports are Team America's points, imports are Team China's points, the trade account is the scoreboard. We have a, a deficit which suggests we are losing a trade and we're, we're losing because China cheats. That's the narrative that most Americans can, can take away from reading newspapers and listening to the typical news. Uh, if you spent many time in the United States over the past decade, or list, list, reading those papers, listening to campaigning politicians, you've, you're probably familiar with the litany of gripes uh, over Chinese policies and practices. We've heard that they manipulate their currency, that 
They subsidize industries, that they steal intellectual property, they dump products in the United States, uh, they restrict exports of raw materials that are crucial to U.S. manufacturers, they mistreat their workers, uh, they sell us tainted products, and, and so on. And there is some truth to some of those allegations, uh, but rarely are these issues put into the proper context. Often the meaning is blown out of proportion or exploited by perpetually campaigning politicians uh, seeking distractions or scapegoats uh, for their own failures, and uh, that, I think, is problematic. China has certainly committed uh, some infractions, intentionally and unintentionally, but, but so has the United States. Um, you might not know this, but U.S. policies uh, have been the subject of more World Trade Organization disputes, 119, followed by Europe uh, with 73 and China with just 30, uh, more than any other country, more than any other government's policies. There's no government that is more likely to be out of compliance with a WTO ruling than the U.S. government, or for a longer period of time. To this day, the United States remains out of compliance on several matters that were uh, resolved, allegedly, uh, years ago, some as long as a decade ago. So there is an element of the pot calling the kettle black. So let's, let's get to 2009. I think that year brought big changes in the relationship. Um, we, as we were emerging from the recession, at very slow growth rates, uh, with very high unemployment by U.S. standards, heavily in debt, and a lot of that debt owned by the Chinese, opinion leaders, policymakers started to ask questions, uh, one of which was, where did we go wrong? Well, we've been too permissive of China's rise. Uh, that was one of the conclusions, and from that flowed, we should take a tougher tack with, with respect to China. And the rhetoric became more strident. Uh, in, in 2009 and 2010, we brought four cases to the WTO against China. Uh, President Obama imposed duties on tires uh, from China under Section 421 of the Trade Act of 1974, which was uh, a special safeguard law which China agreed to when it joined the WTO. Uh, under the law, the President has discretion as to whether or not to implement the recommendations of the U.S. International Trade Commission. Uh, George W. Bush uh, heard from the ITC four times in which they recommended imposing duties under this law, but acting in what he considered to be the national economic interest, he did not impose the duties. So President Obama was the is really the first U.S. President to personally sign off on duties being imposed on Chinese products. Now, you might say, well, what about all these other anti-dumping cases and countervailing duty? I don't, the President doesn't really get his hands dirty there. Uh, that's kind of on statutory uh, autopilot, and the Commerce Department deals with that, really. But here, the President had to sign off. But one big thing that happened, uh, another big thing that happened in 2009 was a report was released that was produced by the American Chamber of Commerce in China. And this report basically detailed lots of protectionist programs that had been in place in China, it reached a conclusion that China had been liberalizing from the late 70s up through the early 2000s, and at about two, in about 2003, it stopped doing so and started to re-embrace uh, the state's role in the economy. Uh, and more discussion ensued after that, more op-eds uh, about China's rise, and China's rise at American expense started to come to the fore. Uh, at least that's the implication of a lot of the articles uh, that were written about China's economic rise. Um, the National Journal had a piece a few years ago 
uh, in, in, this, in this time, in 2009, which was ostensibly about China's economic rise. It's about its economy. But the magazine had many pictures, but they were pictures of, of President Hu embracing Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, uh, President Hu flanked by the Chinese military, uh, President Hu visiting the dear leader in North Korea. None of the pictures evoked uh, anything economic. Uh, so it, it really was helping to feed the, the, the foreign policy hawks who, who may favor disengagement. So opinion leaders were also asking this question. And that was, what, what did China do right? Uh, and what can we learn from China? Well, they used five-year plans, uh, industrial planning to get from 1978 to you know, th 30 years of near double-digit growth. And there we, th therefore, we should too. There was no real consideration of the fact that, well, top-down planning to get from a subsistence economy to a mid-level manufacturing economy might not be the model that the United States ought to follow. Uh, the, no the United States really has nothing of value to learn, or at least by way of emulation, uh, from China's economic rise, uh, because we are at the technological fore. Uh, what we need is something that we have. We have research universities and labs, innovation, experimentation, trial and error, dissent, drawing boards, uh, deep and broad capital markets to, to, to fund this innovation. And these are huge huge advantages that the United States has, uh, yet we complain about low wages in China as a huge advantage. Things that uh, can't be mandated from the top down, uh, as China is coming to learn, are the things that we need uh, in, in this economy. Nevertheless, that hasn't stopped the administration from subsidizing industry after industry, particularly green industries and really anything else that uh, Jeff Imelt recommends the president subsidize. Perhaps the administration's uh, get, getting inspiration from a goo-goo-eyed Tom Friedman of the New York Times who was singing the praises of enlightened autocracy when he wrote, <clears throat> one party autocracy certainly has its drawbacks, but when it, when it is led by a reasonably enlightened group of people as China is today, it can also have great advantages. <clears throat> that one party can just impose the politically difficult but critically important policies needed to move a society forward in the 21st century it is not an accident that China is committed to overtaking us in electric cars, solar power, energy efficiency, batteries, nuclear power, and wind power, etc. <coughs> uh, uh, and, and then not to be outdone, President Obama responded, countries like China are moving even faster. I'm not going to settle for a situation where the United States comes in second place or third place or fourth place in what will be the most important economic engine of the future. <coughs> The two tracks of U.S. policy toward China, the economic and geopolitical slash security tracks, have melded, I think, into one. Uh, and, and, and the meaning of our economic frictions uh, are now, is now magnified uh, through the prism of our geopolitical differences. Other people, and you can count me among them, don't see China as this fearsome beast uh, devoted to avenging two centuries of subjugation and humiliation at the hands of Western powers. That's a story that we're hearing more of, though. Uh, China may be the world's second largest economy, uh, but on, pay, uh, on a per capita basis, China is still kind of poor. Uh, as the Washington Post's John Pomfret put it, he said, a nation with a per capita income of $6,546 ensconced above Ukraine and below Namibia, according to the International Mar Monetary Fund, 
is putting the fear of God, or Mao, into our hearts. Uh, China faces, uh, China has made uh, great strides from its subsistence economy to its mid-level manufacturing economy, but it really faces massive obstacles to get to the next level, uh, overcoming corruption, uh, inequality, environmental degradation, growing middle-class disenchantment. China wants to ascend the global value chain. It's been making false starts there, trying to get companies to give it intellectual property, register intellectual property there. Um, it is, uh, you know, engaging in intellectual, intellectual property theft. What China needs is a culture of dissent. That is the key to innovation. You need trial and error. You need people willing to criticize. Um, they need political and civil liberties in China. And we should welcome China's growth. Uh, there is U.S. economic growth in China's growth and U.S. economic stagnation in China's failure to grow. It's not a zero-sum game. So let me get to the glimpse into the future. Um, the USTR every year publishes a report for Congress on China's WTO compliance. And this year, uh, it, it went through its normal procedure of listing uh, areas where China's not doing very well, is not complying very well. But it also s went on to say China had em embraced reforms up through 2003. Uh, it has now uh, made way for the state to play a major role in the economy, uh, it, and it needs to stop doing so. Um, so if the, new, if the new Chinese government is to do this, I think that would likely reduce some of the sources of friction uh, in the relationship. If it doesn't, there will be more formal disputes at the WTO uh, and probably more trade remedies restrictions. Not, not necessarily that that is the end of the world. I mean, I think the WTO has been working reasonably well uh, for this relationship. I have a very bad taste in my mouth with respect to the trade remedies regime. I think it's th uh, unfair and capricious. Um, but China's insistence on continuing down a path of state-directed capitalism will no doubt lend voice to those who may favor disengaging uh, with China as an imperative of, of national security. Uh, I don't connect these dots, but other others will certainly try. Um, another potentially explosive area of bilateral dissent is evolving in uh, the formulation of U.S. cybersecurity policy. Uh, as many of you are probably aware, um, the, the U.S. government has been recommending that U.S. telecom carriers not purchase uh, telecom components from companies like Huawei and ZTE. Uh, a congressional committee a few months ago released a report saying that these companies are bad actors. Um, the problem with recommending that U.S. companies not purchase from these companies is that it violates our WTO obligations, unless we're to claim a security exemption under Article 20 of the GATT, and the United States has not done that. But this is an area where there's going to be a lot of retaliation, uh, unless policy is clearly articulated uh, and adopted, I think, around the world um, in the same sorts of policies. Um, there's going to be all sorts of non-transparency leading to protectionism here. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is another area of potential uh, controversy. The TPP excludes China. And in fact, in the United States, it was first embraced by the State Department as part of this pivot to Asia, uh, and, you know, thinking about the, the eventual pivot to Asia. Um, it does have elements of isolating China in it. And I think if this agreement is ever concluded, 
and it's concluded in a way that makes it very difficult or impossible for China to join, that is going to be very problematic. The other thing that happens in this administration is trade remedies. China is treated as a non-market economy. It joined the WTO in 2001. It agreed to allow uh, other governments to treat it as a non-market economy for purposes of calculating anti-dumping duties for 15 years. That expires on December 11, 2016. Uh, there are a lot of whispers in town <laughs> about uh, the U.S. trying to find a way to circumvent that obligation. Uh, I think that would be really disastrous. Um, just to give you an idea of how, how important this is to China, President Hu, uh, when he was uh, visiting other countries around the world over the past decade, uh, would ask governments to recognize Beijing instead of Taipei. And if they were already recognizing Beijing, the next thing on his list was treat us as a market economy for dumping. Uh, so I think this is, is important. Um, and finally, if China wants to ascend the global value chain and become more innovative, uh, it really needs to recognize the centrality of an environment that not only encourages but really celebrates dissent. Uh, China needs political and civil liberties, and that, I think, would profoundly affect the relationship for the better. So I'm going to stop here and, and turn it over to Justin. Thanks for your attention. Thanks a lot, Dan, for, uh, for leading off. Thanks, Laura. Uh, for putting this event together, thanks to our terrific conference staff uh, for getting all of you here and bringing sandwiches, um, and thanks to all of you for coming. Um, Dan did, I think, a good job of setting the table, and I, and I very much concur with him, um, that there's a certain disjuncture that is uh, shrinking, really, in the way that trade people talk about China and the way that security people talk about China. Um, and so th one of the challenges with these sorts of events is always to get something that's, that's, that's in the news, that has all of your attention, uh, that will get massive crowds like these to come hear us prattle on. Um, and so timing is tough, and I just want to make the case that this is a really important issue, uh, despite the fact that it doesn't have as much media flash and pizzazz um, as some of the, the recent controversies that you all have been dealing with here on the Hill. So in an effort to sort of drive that point home, um, I just want to say our grandchildren's history books aren't going to say a word about Benghazi. They're not going to say a word about Mali. And by and large, if we get U.S.-China relations wrong, the Iraq war, the global war on terror, and all the attendant consequences will likely merit only a footnote. So this is sort of the gravity, the importance of what we're talking about, um, whether or not it's lighting up Twitter. So I'd like to pitch this at a fairly high level of abstraction because I think that there are some fundamental contradictions in American China policy. I'm going to start out by sketching two general views that people in the academy have about China's rise and what it means for the United States. And at the risk of sort of overdrawing distinctions, I think there are two fairly discrete camps. And it's worth thinking about uh, how those sorts of theories work um, in practice. I'm then going to talk a little bit about how U.S.-China policy combines elements of the two different views um, in policy terms. And then talk about how they, they, they've come to be roped into the, to the pivot or the rebalancing to Asia 
and U.S.-China policy and offer some criticism of that policy. And then at the end, I'll offer some brief suggestions about how to alter U.S.-China policy uh, in, in policy terms and then leave it open for hopefully some vicious questions uh, and some sufficient answers uh, from myself and from Dan. So and I should mention, I guess, that this all draws to a great extent from the paper that's available for you outside. So if you have uh, greater interest or would like to hear me better edited than I will be today, uh, you're welcome to look at that paper and hopefully some of those things will both be fleshed out and a little more clearly articulated. So two ways of thinking about China's rise that sort of if you were in a graduate seminar in international politics, um, people would talk about. So I have these sort of cute terms that we use in town sometimes, so forgive me because I'm normally a hater of cute terms. Uh, but the two basic schools of thought are, on the one hand, panda huggers, and on the other hand, dragon slayers. That's the articulation uh, that I use. And some of you who've been following this issue for a long time may recall, I think it was in 2005, then I guess he was Deputy Secretary of State Robert Zellick was in Chengdu and physically hugged a panda cub, which caused a great uh, uh, amount of commotion here in Washington about whether this was an articulation of his view of China, that he was putting himself squarely in the panda hugger camp. So what is a panda hugger, after all? Um, in general, people think about China, panda huggers think about China in two different ways. The first sort of way is liberal institutionalists. And so what these people think is that International institutions like the United Nations, but also different sorts of trade institutions, multilateral regional groupings, etc., pose important constraints on the way that states behave in the international system. So the crucial challenge for a liberal institutionalists is the question how to incorporate China into a series of international institutions, international legal obligations, and international norms that will head off any sorts of bad behavior uh, that we seek to avert in the future. The second variant of panda huggers, and in, in, in general, these tend to overlap. People may take both of these views at the same time. This turns on a, a variation of democratic peace theory, right? And so what these uh, panda huggers believe is, is a sort of interlocking set of mechanisms that will lead to a lack of security competition between the United States and China. So the first sort of link in this causal chain turns very much on trade. So it's less about international institutions and more about the trade relationship. And the trade relationship produces economic growth, which I think everybody uh, agrees on in China. And that economic growth produces a growing middle class in China. So people move from sort of subsistence agriculture and move into what could be loosely coined a middle class. Growing middle classes, the theory goes, tend to demand more, greater political rights, political reforms, and even voice in choosing their own government. And those demands, over time, produce democracy, or perhaps not democracy, but a more democratic, more liberal regime. That more democratic, more liberal regime, as the theory goes, then plugs into a crude version of democratic peace theory, I should say in, in, in defense of democratic peace theorists, this is again a quite dumbed down uh, variation of their theory. But the idea goes that as China becomes more democratic and more liberal, there will be some pleasant harmony between American security demands and Chinese security demands. This isn't very well articulated, whether China sort of makes its peace 
with American military domination of the Asia-Pacific region, or whether there comes to be some condominium of powers, or what precisely happens. But this produces, again, a general harmony, comity, and peace, averting security competition in the future. Then lumbering up uh, uh, ominously come the dragon slayers. Uh, and these people, in, in, in academic terms, have a very, very uh, sort of parsimonious theory. And the story is basically that if China's economic growth continues, U.S.-China relations are headed for big trouble. And it doesn't take into account democracy. It doesn't take into account, or I shouldn't say it doesn't take into account, it doesn't ascribe much predictive power to democracy or to international institutions or even to the profound economic relationship. If China becomes more powerful in this view, it's going to try to achieve regional hegemony in Asia, the same as any other country situated as China would be situated would do. And it would do so for sound strategic reasons, not because it's wicked, not because it's imperial, not because it's sort of uh, a reemergence of a sort of Hitler-esque state, but rather because that's the best way for China to produce, produce security for itself. At the same time, for sound strategic reasons, the United States would try to prevent that from happening. It would ring China with an array of hostile alliances. It would conceivably cut off or circumscribe economic relations with China in an effort to strangle Chinese economic growth. Uh, this, is, this is a grim, tragic view of international politics, but it's one that's out there. So you have these two very starkly drawn uh, schools of thought in sort of political theory terms, in the academy. But how does that matter in Washington? I just prattling on here about what some uh, Tweedy academics are talking about? No. U.S.-China policy combines these two views in important ways. So very rarely do you find a card-carrying dragon slayer or panda hugger in Washington. Everyone is some amalgam of the two uh, uh, different theories. So by and large, and Dan's done a good job of explaining the exceptions to this rule, Pretty much everyone in town favors the economic relationship in some form or the other. We want to label them a currency manipulator, or we want to impose duties on Chinese products, or we want to do a number of different things to sort of tweak the balance of payments, et cetera, et cetera. But you rarely hear people coming forward and saying, we need to end the economic relationship with China in an effort to strangle it so that it can't uh, pursue more military power and domination of Asia. So there is broad, general support for economic engagement with China in Washington. Similarly, there is broad, general support for what I think has to be termed a policy of military containment of China. Recently, as part of the pivot, Leon Panetta announced that the United States would be changing from deploying 50 percent of U.S. naval assets to the Asia-Pacific region, upping the ante to 60 percent of U.S. naval assets uh, to the Asia-Pacific region. And Panetta was asked in June of last year, well, what's the story here with this pivot? Aren't you guys just really containing China? There have been a number of questions along these lines, and the responses always go as they did uh, last June in general. Panetta says, this is not about the containment of China. Why is the United States deploying 60% of its naval assets to the Asia-Pacific region? Because of the challenge of humanitarian assistance and needs, the challenge of dealing with weapons of mass destruction that are proliferating throughout the world, and dealing with narco-trafficking, and dealing with piracy, and dealing with issues that relate to trade, 
and how do we improve trade, and how do we improve lines of communication, end quote. The Chinese, unsurprisingly, do not believe this story. They do not believe this story because it does not deserve to be believed. Ask yourselves if the Chinese leadership was devoting 60% of the People's Liberation Army Navy assets to the Caribbean Sea uh, and the seas around the west coast of South America and remarked that it was to deal with cocaine trafficking, marijuana trafficking, and had nothing to do with the United States, nor did it have anything to do uh, with its growing alliances with Venezuela and Cuba. Ask yourselves if your bosses would give that argument so much as a moment's consideration. It is a risible idea. And I think the reason we tell this fictitious story is more about American clients uh, and partners in the region than it is about deluding ourselves that we can convince China that this story has any merit. So if we don't have dragon slayers, we don't have panda huggers, what do we have? Well, foreign policy people are always fond of making up ridiculous terms, and today will be no exception uh, to the rule. Interestingly, there was a paper, Zalmay Khalilzad, before he became uh, a diplomat working in, in Iraq and in Afghanistan in the last 10 years, was a scholar at the RAND Corporation. And he, with a team of other scholars, wrote an article titled, Congage China. Right, so what is Congage? It's containment and engagement. That's what we need to do. We need to contain China militarily, and we need to engage China economically. And as I argue in the paper, that for all intents and purposes has been America's security policy, or America's foreign policy, really, toward China for decades now. So bringing this sort of engagement school, this hybrid view of China, uh, into the context of US-China policy and into the context of the pivot to Asia uh, what do my sort of criticisms of these ideas uh, lead you to believe uh, about this policy? The first is that there's a, an essential contradiction at the core of engaging China, containing China and engaging China. And that's simply that the one aspect of the policy makes the other aspect of the policy more difficult. So you will hear people in town say that this is just a hedging strategy, right? We're investing in China. We have a lot of interest in Chinese economic growth. But just in case things don't go as our causal mechanism, you know, the middle class, the democracy, the peace and reconciliation, binding up China and international institutions such that they can't act out too dramatically, we're going to put a lot of military effort uh, into ringing in China and circumscribing its ability to act out uh, militarily in Asia. Except it's not a hedging strategy. Because the more you engage China, the harder it becomes to contain China. And I think Dan would be the first to tell you, the more you contain China, the harder it becomes to engage China. One aspect of the policy works entirely at cross purposes with the other, which is not what hedging means. So that's the first problem with the pivot. Uh, this sort of deep embedded contradiction in the very premise of the policy. The second big fundamental problem with the policy is that America for decades has looked upon the infantilization of its allies and partners in Asia as a feature rather than a bug. There's an interesting article that I cite in the paper and that I commend to you if you have interest in this question by a scholar now at Georgetown University, but previously who served uh, working on Asia in the administration of George Bush the Younger, named Victor Cha. It appeared in International Security, I believe, in 2010. 
And as he explained, the so-called hub and spokes system of alliances that the United States assembled in Asia uh, in the middle of the 20th century was designed with what he terms a power play rationale. That is that the United States set up a number of bilateral alliances with countries that were much weaker than the United States and put the United States on the hook to provide for their security in an effort to control those allies. U.S. policymakers feared that a Japan or a South Korea would act out rashly and in, in, in ways that uh, uh, endangered the United States. So we viewed diminishing their defenses at the, at the cost of building up our control over their foreign and security policies is a trade-off worth making. And I argue in the paper that whatever that rationale, whatever sense that rationale made in the middle of the 20th century, it makes very little sense today. Um, the United States should be encouraging multilateral cooperation in Asia, not just with the United States at the center of the action, as is our want. If India, Japan, Australia, the Philippines, Vietnam, and other countries wish to engage in military partnerships, in cooperation, even in arms trading, the United States should be encouraging that rather than insisting on playing a central role and paying a remarkably disproportionate percentage of the cost uh, of defending those states from threats real and potential. So those are the two big critiques that show up in the paper. Engagement is contradictory, and the United States should stop infantilizing its allies and demand that they do more to defend themselves. So what to do now? Well, they're sort of entailed uh, in the contradictions. The first thing is to do less ourselves and demand that Asian states do more. If you look at the threat environments facing the United States, facing Japan, facing India, facing the Philippines, facing Vietnam, and look at the percentages of GDP that the various countries devote to defense spending, you would absolutely have a hard time making sense of a country like the United States that faces a much more benign threat environment, spending much more as a percentage of GDP than countries that are looking at a growing power that is making a series uh, of ambitious territorial claims, uh, and, and engaging in uh, provocative di diplomacy uh, to say that they're sort of lackadaisical about their own security. It doesn't make much sense on paper, and if the United States stepped back, other countries would step up and do more to ensure their own security. And that leads to a general point that the United States should look at Asia as an opportunity to revert to an offshore balancing strategy. If, if in fact, China looks like the return of Nazi Germany, starts gobbling up its neighbors, uh, enslaving their peoples. That would be of profound concern to the United States. But we don't want to build that assumption into the core of our policy as though it's metaphysically bound to happen. The United States should watch out for that anywhere. Uh, if Brazil has some flight of fancy in South America, that's important to the United States. Um, if, as some people have projected, a sort of European collapse happens and Germany, God forbid, starts throwing its weight around in Europe, that would be of concern to the United States. And by the same token, if China were to behave in this way, that would be of concern to the United States. But we have no reason to believe that that's a foregone conclusion. And acting as if it is makes it more likely that the United States will engage in a very costly security competition with China and at the same time make that outcome even more likely.
So I think I'll leave it there and uh, take questions. Thank you very much.